go ahead and get started then. We have uh, assignment due on Wednesday would be the homework. And that's homework number three. So that covers chapters 17 through 22, which are the ones for the exam coming up next week. So we've gone through all of those except for 22, and 22 is what I'll cover today. Uh, any of it I don't finish, then we'll carry that over till Wednesday, but hopefully we're through most of that, uh, to most if not all of it today. So that's due next time, and again, of course, it can be submitted up on D2L up through 6 a.m. the following morning. And then the following week I have, I'm looking for your solar observations, the third time I'll take those. Just need a copy of your data sheet that day. So um, a picture of it emailed to me is fine in this case, or if you have it here uh, that day, I can just take a picture of it or get it scanned or something, just something so that I have a copy of it that day so I can give you credit for it. And then coming up after that, shortly after that, in the next week or two, we'll be looking at the project and trying to get that finalized as we're getting close to the end of the semester because right, we'll be into November next week and then final exam is, final exam is December 11th. So they did post the final exam schedule, so we're only a little over a month away from the final exam for the class. So getting close there. Uh, then November 6th will be the exam and lab as we've done before. So the exam will cover chapters 17 through 22 as three units. So one unit is 17 through 19 is one third of the exam. 20 and 21 are the other th uh, second third. And then the last one is 22. So chapter 22 is the most heavily weighted of them. So not each chapter is not equally weighted in the exam. Uh, 22 is considered, I consider one unit. That's what we're looking at today. Uh, the other ones kind of tie together and are just really just one section. So when you're looking at them, that's how you want to study. Don't overemphasize 17, 18, and 19 as compared to chapter 22 because you're going to get the same number of questions on chapter 22 as you did on those three, total of those three chapters. And same as the others with the review quizzes. Make sure you do those. Um, some of you have, no, some have not. So again, it's a chance for a little bit of extra credit just by looking at, just by taking them. So the first attempt is extra credit up to a point, which you know can't hurt you with the exams. If it gives you, if you take all three of them and you get only get three or four questions right on each, that's still an extra point towards your final grade. It's certainly, they cannot hurt you no matter what you do on them. And they do review some of the questions that you might see on the exam coming up next week. So you have until the time of the exam to be able to take those, which is 8.30 on November the 6th. All right, questions? All right, well, clear that then. Oh, come on. There we go. Well, our picture of the day for today then is... Our sun, so we talked about our sun before. Our sun is at an unusual minimum right now, and in fact, an unusually low minimum. We're, we're around the minimum of the sunspot cycle, but we've seen essentially no sunspots all year, which even at a minimum is still rare. So we're at a very, we had a really odd maximum the last time, so there's kind of a glitchy part of the cycle right now, which does happen from time to time. We talk about an 11-year sunspot cycle. It's not perfect. It's not always exactly 11 years. I can't tell you exactly when the next peak will be, but I can tell you to within a year or two. 
So there are the thoughts as to whether this will remain and whether we'll have an extended minimum like we had kind of an extended maximum the last time or if it'll come back to a normal cycle. The spots that we do see there aren't associated with the sun. That's actually our International Space Station. And the space station in orbit around the Earth in a very low orbit orbits around once every 90 minutes. So to someone, to an astronaut on the space station, you know, the day is 45 minutes long. If you're going by, you know, sunrise, sunset, the sun rises, 45 minutes later it sets. And then 45 minutes later it rises again. That's how fast it's whipping around the sun in that low orbit. And it does, you can look up, I think there's some links in the description down below there that you can find out when the International Space Station will be visible from any given location. And if you wanted, of course, someone here plotted as to where it would be and that it would pass across the face of the sun from their location. Normally during the middle of the day, you wouldn't see it. You'd normally see it right after sunset, right before sunrise, uh, when it's nicely illuminated. But here you can see it as a silhouette when it passes directly in front of the sun. So a number of images taken very close together as it whipped past there. This would not take very long, uh, probably within a matter of a couple of seconds it would pass across the entire face of the sun and be done. So you had to be ready, take all, take the images, just rapidly take the images as it passed in front of the sun. So in order to do something like this, you'd have to plan your location, plan your time all well in advance as to when this would occur and then hope that it wasn't cloudy, right? Because if it clouded out that day after you had everything planned, you wouldn't be, uh, would be out of luck. So kind of a cool picture that they were able to take there. The only signs of solar activity that you can see are a few little prominences around the sides. So very, very quiet sun right now in terms of activity. So not a lot of sunspots, solar flares, all of that is very minimal at this point. All right, questions, yeah. Space Station, as I recall, is about the size of a football field. So big for our standards, min minuscule compared to the sun. Right. So this really, I mean, this is, this is an illusion in that, you, know, you see how big the space station is compared to the sun. Don't forget the space station's only a couple hundred miles away and the sun is 93 million miles away. So to scale, if you could actually put the space station out there, it would be a speck. It only looks bigger because it's so much closer to us. But yeah, it's about, about that size. And you can, almost, you can see some of the features here. I mean, the two little on the sides, those are the big solar panels. And then the main space station is the little piece in the middle is where the astronauts work. Good. Other questions? All right. Well, then we will go on to our chapter for the day, which is 22, which is actually our chapter for the week. So uh, go ahead and get started on that. And if it looks like we're kind of skipping some things, last time I talked about stars forming, now I'm talking about stars dying. I'm not talking about the lives of stars. And that's because that's really the boring part of the main, here, here's the whole slide. This is the entire life of a star. The middle part. It's formed, okay, it's born, that's it. It starts burning hydrogen to helium. Now today I'm going to look at what, what happens after it uses up all its hydrogen. The middle part while it's using its hydrogen, there it all is. That's all we need. Now what happens? Nothing. 
That's what our sun is doing right now. And our sun, we have a little bit more to study just because it's so close. We can see more detail in it. So we can see some of the activity. We get a little more interesting. But for most of it, nothing changes for millions, billions, or even a trillion years, depending on the life of the star. So for something like our sun, for 10 billion years, it's pretty much doing the same thing. And if you went and looked at the sun a billion years ago or a billion years from now, slight changes. It might be getting a little brighter, slowly, slowly, slowly. But essentially, it's the same as it was a billion years ago. And if you can jump in your time machine and go forward a billion years, it's going to look pretty much the same. So pretty much nothing is going on. It's converting hydrogen into helium. Remember, that's only in the core, so the outer layers of the sun aren't changing. So there is, there is energy being produced. You are fusing hydrogen into helium, meaning the composition of the sun is changing, but we can't see it. Because that's all way down in the core. The outer layers aren't changing. So the outer layers are still 90% hydrogen and 10% helium. At this point, the sun's about halfway through its life, so it's more like a 50-50 mix in the core. But again, we can't see that. So we can't really see that. The part that we can observe for our sun or for any other star doesn't change. But the sun, the core itself becomes depleted in hydrogen and enriched in helium. So our sun's maybe at a 50-50 mix right now. And it'll slowly use that last bit of hydrogen. It's about halfway through its gas tank, if you want to think of it that way. Lived about 5 billion years, got about 5 billion years more to go. But again, that, again that's, I want to emphasize, that's only the center section. We can't see this change going on. So if I take a spectrum of the sun and measure its abundances, I'm going to get that it's almost all hydrogen, a decent amount of helium, and nothing much else. While this happens, as the sun converts hydrogen to helium, the temperature is slowly increasing. And this is really gradual over billions of years. So it's slowly increasing, increasing the rate at which the nuclear reactions occur. If the temperature is getting hotter, nuclear reactions go faster. So the higher the temperature, the faster those nuclear reactions go, making the sun a little bit more luminous. So the sun is changing. It's getting brighter. It's not noticeable. Over our lifetimes, forget it. It's not noticeable over millions of years. Maybe when you start talking billions of years, you might see a little uptick in how much energy it's putting out. It's a very slow change. But after that is when everything starts to change. After you use up the hydrogen is when things change. So how long does a star live? Well, that really depends on the mass of the star, how much material it is born with. So a star that's born with a lot of mass, you might think, oh, it's got a lot of fuel. But it goes through it so fast, it doesn't do very well. Whereas a small star, they've got very little fuel. It might be only a tenth of the mass of the sun. Their core is just this little tiny bit, but they last forever. So, you know, you can compare it to, you know, the big gas guzzler, big giant vehicle, and a little tiny car. Well, you can put them, get them both a full tank of gas. The little car might actually go further because it's not using it as fast. So the small star actually can last a lot longer in these very small stars M stars, the lower, the cooler classification, can last a couple hundred billion years, many times longer than our sun. And the cooler ones than that, as you go down to, remember, they're divided, they're M class, but then they're M1, M2, M3, M4, and so on. 
actually get up over a trillion years. These stars down here have never died. We've never seen one die in the history of the universe. The universe is about 14 billion years old, meaning that these stars even formed at the beginning of the universe would still be around. Any M star that ever formed still exists. Whereas the hotter stars, they go through their fuel at a prodigious rate. They, just, they are going through it like crazy. So not only do they have a lot of fuel, but they go through it many times faster than the sun. They're many times more luminous. So even though they had 40 times the sun's mass, so you can consider that 40 times the amount of fuel that the sun has, they go through it many times faster than the sun, and that O5 star might only live a million years. So some of the hottest stars go through all of that fuel in just a million years. We still can't watch their evolution. Right? Even a million years is way too long for us, but, we can, but it's a lot quicker. So any stars like these that formed more than a million years ago are gone. So if they formed two million years ago, all these stars are gone. Whereas all of these stars are still around. So we tend to get an enrichment of the lower mass stars. Because they form, they form more often, there's much more common to form, and they, don't, and they live a much longer time. Okay. So what happens eventually, at some point, whether it's a high-mass star or a low-mass star, you've got to use up the fuel. If you keep driving and never go to a gas station, eventually you're going to run out of gas. You're going to run out of fuel. So eventually, at some point, you're going to run out of that. The star has to start changing. If you remember, from, we're, looking at the sun, we're looking at the star as a balance between two things. It's gravity is trying to pull it down. Gravity always tries to pull things down to the smallest size it can possibly do. And the pressure pushing outward from the energy. For something like the sun, it's balanced. Gravity pulling down, immensely strong, is balanced by the energy production pushing the pressure from the interior, pushing it out. So the sun is in a perfect state of balance. If you get rid of that energy source, all of a sudden the pressure decreases, so the star starts to collapse. The core starts to collapse, I should say. So the core starts to get smaller and smaller. Now, that's not doesn't mean it just collapses instantaneously. It's a slow process. The fuel starts to run out, and the core starts to contract a little bit. That heats things up, allowing a little more energy production, and so it's a slow contraction, but the core is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually you get something from where we are right now, that's where our sun is right now, hydrogen burning in a core and then the rest of the star around it, where you get a pretty much a helium core, so just helium, and then you have hydrogen burning around that, so you haven't completely gotten rid of everything. There's all the helium inert. Nothing is happening with that at this point. So that is slowly condensing down, getting denser and denser, hotter and hotter. And the energy from the star is coming from this shell. Well, when this happens, what that does is uh, it starts the star expanding. The core is still collapsing. So the core, it's kind of, it feels like a contradiction. The core is contracting and getting smaller. The outer layers are expanding. So the star is getting bigger and bigger. And you're going from things like the sun to a giant star up into a supergiant star. 
So the stars get larger and larger and larger. All while this is happening, the interior layers are still contracting. The inside is still contracting. That helium core is getting hotter and hotter. And eventually, that's going to give us a new source of energy. If we can get it hot enough, we can fuse helium together. We needed 15 million degrees to fuse hydrogen together to overcome the repulsion of those two positive charges to get them to actually stick together. Helium has two positive charges in each. Two times two is four. It's four times the force. So they're, they're trying to push each other apart even stronger than just those two protons. So it takes even more energy, higher temperatures, to get them to fuse together. So we'll look at what happens there, but let's see what happens on, as I said, we'd see the main sequence here, uh, see the uh, HR diagram again and again. So what happens with the star does depend on its mass. There's the red line is the main sequence. So that's where the star was for most of its life, 90% of its life. And what do we see? We don't see what's going on in the core. We only see what's going on in the outer layers. That's the visible portion of the star. That's the part we can follow. So for a star like our sun right here, it's slowly, over the course of its life, this is what it's slowly doing. It's slowly getting a little bit brighter. So that's what it's doing right now. It's going to take it, you know, uh, billions of years. This is seven, that's seven billion years right there. So it'll take it about seven billion years to get up to here. So by 10 billion years, it's up to... By 10 billion years, it's changed a little bit. It's gotten a little bit brighter. It's gone from one solar luminosity to, you know, a fraction of a solar lumen, a little bit bigger than that. So it's gotten a little bit brighter. Once it uses up that fuel, the times start to go a little quicker, and it actually moves up uh, a lot faster, so that after 10 billion years, by uh, just this only takes another one, but this took 10 billion years to get here. That's what the sun does during its life. In the next billion years, it jumps up that far. That's when the sun will become a red giant star. Its temperature will decrease, it'll get cooler, so it'll turn orange-red instead of yellowish color it is now, and it will get brighter, a lot brighter. So it'll get bigger and it will get cooler, and it will become one of those red giant stars. So that takes about another billion years as it goes through the red giant stage. So again, the time frames are all still very, very slow compared to what we're used to thinking about. How long it takes depends on the mass of the star. A star a lot more massive than the sun, way up here, and I'll look at those in more detail in the last section, goes through this a lot faster, taking about 10 million years. Yeah, there's even more massive ones that go faster, when they get, they, they don't really increase much in brightness, a little bit. They've moved up a little bit. Pretty much all they do is get bigger and bigger and bigger. Remember, the big stars are over here. So it's moving from these stars, which were big in the first place, to even bigger stars. But it does it a lot faster. It only takes 10 million years rather than 10, 11 billion years. So it goes 1,000 times faster for a star 15 times the mass of our sun. For lower mass stars, again, it's all theoretical because we can't watch them. We can't see any of these stars. We can't go find a star that's half the mass of the sun that has evolved, it's changed. But based on what we know of other stars, based on theoretical models, we can then make that prediction that it's going to take them hundreds of millions of years 
to you go through all of their uh, fuel. So the stars in the first stage will actually go from being main sequence stars up to being red giant stars and even into supergiant stars. All right, so finishing the first section. Again, the vast majority of the life of a star is, is sitting on the main sequence. Yeah, that's the boring part. 90% of its life, it's just sitting there fusing hydrogen to helium. It's nice and stable. Nothing's changing. But eventually, you run out of fuel. Eventually, the hydrogen, the hydrogen is used up. The core begins to contract. So the core is contracting right now, getting hotter and hotter. And the outer layers begin to expand. And that's when the star will become a red giant. Won't get big enough to engulf the Earth yet. We'll get there eventually. Uh, right now, it's still within the orbit of Mercury, but many times bigger than it was. It'll be enough to wipe out life on Earth five, six billion years from now. Because right, even though it's getting cooler, it's getting much brighter, a lot more energy. So the Earth will end up being, you know, atmosphere will get vaporized, oceans will get vaporized at that point. All right, so how can we understand the life of a star? And I think I gave you this example. I think I may have mentioned this last time, but it's too long. So no astronomer or even group of astronomer or even generations of astronomer can sit there and watch one star go through its life. We can't even watch a star form, but certainly we can't watch a star form, go through its entire life and then die. Even the most massive stars are taking a million years or so to do that. Lower mass stars are billions of years ago. So I've given you the example, you know, how can we understand how humans change over their lifetimes? Well, that you could study, right? If you wanted to make that your lifetime project, you could do it. You could at least study and watch people change. You could watch children grow into teens and adults, and you could watch adults age. But what if you're doing it in a the semester? Then you can't. You can't watch someone go through their entire life in a semester. So, but what you could do is you could look at groups of people. So you can look at infants, children, teens, young adults, etc. And you could put together, you know, how do things change based on that? That's what we have to do with stars. I can find young stars that are just forming. We looked at those in the last couple of chapters. So those are essentially our infant stars. Then we get to our young stars. Essentially, then you get to adults. So they, they, this is the formation of stars. The adult stars, that's the longest stage, stage of it. And then you can look at the later stages. That's what we're going to start looking at is now, you know, at what happens as they start to use out their fuel and they come to the ends of their lives. So we could do that. We can look at different stars. We can look at a star that's forming. We can look at stars that are going to the ends of their lives and things in the middle. And we can piece together what happens, just as you could in a semester project trying to study, you know, how people change over the course of a lifetime. So... This is, this is really what we do for stars. We're trying to examine and study them, but we've got to look at all the bits and pieces. We can't really look at one, we can't really look at one star at all. So one of the things we use for this to try to understand stellar evolution are clusters of stars. Star clusters are great laboratories for studying stellar evolution. If we just look at random stars, 
This star may have formed two billion years ago. This star may have formed 100 million years ago. They formed at all different times. So we have to figure out then where they are. In a cluster of stars, they all formed together. Doesn't mean they formed instantaneously at exactly the same instant, but over a relatively short period of time. So we can use that. You know, essentially, we're making a controlled experiment. We are eliminating time factor from it. The stars formed at practically the same time, relatively short compared to their lifespans, and they formed from the same material. There wasn't any big difference in the compositions of the stars, the big stars, or the small stars. They all formed from the same stuff. Whereas other stars, we might find stars that formed very early, 10 billion years ago. Well, they had a lot less metals, remember, everything other than hydrogen or helium, than the stars forming today. So they all form from the same thing. So you know, in the idea of a controlled experiment, you're trying to get only one thing that varies. So the only thing that varies, the one thing we can't, can, can't control here, is the mass. How much material happened to form the stars? So we can study the effects of mass on the evolution of stars by looking at star clusters. And that's part of what you looked at in the lab last time, and that, well, that you still get a little bit of time at the end today to be able to finish up, was looking at two different clusters and seeing how stars have changed. So we can see different stages of evolution by looking at different mass stars, even within the cluster. Higher mass stars will be far further along their lives than a low mass star. They all formed at the same time. These live 100 million years. These live 5 billion years. These live 20 billion years. Well, after so many millions of years, we know these ones are getting to the end of their lives. These ones aren't even close yet. So we can watch the effects of aging by looking at not just one cluster, but by looking at dozens and hundreds of clusters at different stages. Now, there are a couple different types of clusters. This is one example. This is an example of a globular star cluster because it looks like a nice big glob of stars out there in the sky. These are located uh, pretty much in a spherical region of our galaxy that we call the halo. We'll talk about that in more detail in a couple of chapters when we talk about our galaxy. But essentially around our galaxy, there's this great spherical region around it that has a number of globular clusters like this. These are really old. These are the really old clusters. They've been around since our galaxy formed. They're 10, 11, 12 billion years old. They can consist of hundreds of thousands of stars. So all the stars that you're seeing here, all these individual stars are all parts of this cluster. So they're very old clusters. So when we look at globular clusters, we're looking at one end where stars that don't live very long are gone. If a star only lives a million years and this formed 10 billion years ago, a million year star is gone. If the stars only live 5 billion years, they're gone. If it's 10 billion years old, stars like the sun are reaching the end of their life, 10 billion years. How long our sun will live? If these clusters are 10 billion years old, then we're seeing what happens. We're seeing things like what happens to the sun at the end of its life. When we're looking at those stars, we're seeing them just at that stage where, they're, where, they're occur where that's occurring. So when cl star clusters form, I mean, everything forms at the same time from the same material. So here we're seeing some of the old stars, and we can also look at open clusters. Open clusters are in the disk, the flattened portion of our galaxy. 
they might only have thousands of stars. I kind of emphasize, I said these contain 100,000 stars. I, I don't mean that it contains 100,000, you know, hundreds of thousands of stars, lots of stars, a lot more stars than these that might contain thousands of stars. These are relatively young. These have formed recently. These could be tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years old, a lot less than 10 billion years old. So they're relatively young by comparison. So now when we look at these, we're looking at younger stars, younger stars that are aging. Some stars will still be there. Some stars will have evolved off. Those most massive stars just don't last very long. These stars, now we get to see some of those beginning to age. And stars like our sun, yeah, they're just at the beginning of their lives. They're still just getting started after 100 million years if you're going to live 10 billion years. So we can see some of the younger clusters like this as well. And again, these are what we look at. And I tell you roughly ages. These are many billions of years old. These can be a few hundred million years old. Uh, the other difference between them is that these ones don't last as long as a cluster. There's fewer stars, less gravity. They slowly spread out into space. So what we see is an open cluster. If we came back in a billion years, those stars would all be dispersed among the galaxy. We wouldn't be able to see it as a cluster anymore. Globular clusters like these, hundreds of thousands of stars, stronger gravity. The gravity is enough to hold these together. So that's why we can still see them after billions of years. They're still bound together. They've got enough gravity to hold them together. So that's why we can see these longer. We're never going to see a really old open cluster, even if they formed 10 billion years ago, because the stars are just slowly spreading out. They're there. They're just spread out among the galaxy. You know, our sun could have been part of one of these. In fact, there are some studies to trace back. You know, what are the other stars that are associated with our sun? What clusters might we have been in billions of years ago? But they've slowly spread out. So clusters like these don't last very, don't last as long. The other kind of type of cluster that we get is what we call OB associations. Uh, I showed you this last week when we looked at the Orion Nebula and star formation. There's the visible light image. These are the same thing. This is just looking in the infrared. This is the uh, grouping of very hot stars that form together. These still are, these are very young. So globular clusters really old. Uh, open clusters relatively young. OB association super young. And we can still see the remnants, all the gas left around them from their formation. These are brand new stars. And OB association simply means the stars that we see within them are classes O and B, right? Those are the very hottest, the very upper, upper left-hand side of the main sequence. Those are the stars that don't live very long. So stars like here, the trapezium and Orion, these are stars that don't live very long. They're only a few hundred thousand years old. At some point, they'll reach the end of their lives, and if they're massive enough, these are stars that will actually explode. So... You know, give us the supernova in Orion, get a really, really bright object there at some point when the most massive of these goes through their lives. There are younger stars around. There are other stars forming as well, sun-like stars that are forming in the same area, but they're overwhelmed. Remember how much brighter these stars are. These stars are not just twice as bright or five times. These are talking thousands of times brighter than our sun. So these overwhelm any of the other stars forming around there. And we look at them within the star-forming region. 
So it's a region of star formation. Orion is a prominent one of those where we have some younger stars, super young stars like those in the trapezium, and we have some older stars further away. So these are some of, this is some of the youngest group of stars, especially nearby, that we can see. Nearby, 1,000, 1,500 light years away. That's nearby for star-forming regions we don't have. Uh, very fortunately, we do not have uh, stars forming much closer than that. The star formation process isn't dangerous, but we'll see. don't think I really cover it until next week, but um, supernovae are not something that you want going off nearby. Uh, a supernova going off really close to us would sterilize life on Earth, wipe us all out. Luckily, there are no stars that, are, that would go supernova, any cl close to us. These are, these are far enough away. So close enough to be able to study well, but not close enough to be dangerous. And we'll ta I'll talk about that a little bit later. So how do we look at this? Well, I wanted to kind of show you some of the diagrams and looking at how we look at the star cluster and how it changes. So for a very young star cluster, I had you plot one of those. Probably something looked very similar to this. Uh, on one of your diagrams last time. So you had stars on the main sequence. This one is so young that some of these stars are still in the process of forming. They haven't made it down to, these aren't coming off. These are actually still coming down to the main sequence. They're still collapsing. So these are a very young cluster, only a few million years old. So while these stars are still finishing their formation, the very most massive stars are already beginning to evolve off. They're beginning to change over time. So this is one example here. Here is another example, again, of one of these. This is an observation of a specific cluster of stars and looks very similar to kind of a theoretical model that we would see of it. So this is something a couple million years old. Stars are still forming. And most of those stars are lower mass. Remember, these are the more common stars, or stars like our sun, maybe a little bit more massive. Uh, a lot of them less massive, but they're harder to find. Over time, that will change. So we went from something like this, where there were stars all the way up the main sequence, to after 100 million years, all those stars are gone. After 100 million years, any star with a lifetime of less than 100 million years is gone. It's used up all its fuel, gone through its life, gone through the end of its life. Some of these stars, like those like our sun, which would be right around at the bottom here, they're just getting started after 100 million years. That was the time of planetary, that was, that was at shortly after planets had formed, our solar system was still in the process at the end states of its formation at this point. So at that point, all of these more massive stars were gone. And there are some stars that are now beginning to leave. These are stars that are using up their fuel using up their hydrogen and beginning to move off. So you actually start to see some red giant stars. These are evolved stars that have gone through their lives. So in 100, after 100 million years, some of those stars have begun to uh, leave. If we jump ahead to 4 billion years, it gets closer down the main sequence. Again, the whole main sequence up here is going to be nice and clean. And there are stars. Again, this is just a few of the stars plotted. This is some older, this is about 4 billion years, what you would theoretically see. And you can get down to a very old cluster. This is actually, 
well, you didn't plot all those stars. I, didn't, I wasn't that cruel. I made you plot a bunch of stars. I didn't make you plot all of them. This is actually the cluster that you, one of the clusters that you looked at. Um, there's the main sequence right there. And there's the stars that are moving off. And these are all the evolved stars. So stars like the sun at a 10 billion year old cluster, their luminosity of the sun is one. Those are the stars that are just leaving the main sequence. So this is kind of how we can get that picture. We can study all these different stages. We can see clusters that are millions of years old, hundreds of millions. I've only given you four examples. You could, of course, find things in between those. So you can put that all together to kind of get a picture of how stars begin to evolve. Now, one of the things we can then determine is how old the cluster is. I had you do that in the lab, or you're still finishing up that portion of the lab if you haven't turned it in. But we look at the turnoff point. These stars are still on the main sequence. They are burning hydrogen into helium. These stars have used up their hydrogen. They've got some other energy source. We'll talk about that later. The stars right at the turnoff point tell us the age. Because if these stars live, one billion years and they're just using up their just finishing up their fuel, then that cluster is one billion years old. If these stars live 10 billion years, then the cluster is 10 billion years old, which is roughly the case in this one. If, these cluster, if those stars live 12 billion years, we can, again, we can use that turnoff point. Where things are turning off, there, there, you know, there, a little harder to find up here, but we can actually determine how old the cluster is. And that's one of the things I have you do in the lab. Pick out, find out, look at your graphs that you made, find one turnoff point, find a turnoff point, and figure out how old, the estimate at least, how old the cluster is. So that's kind of what we do with this. The younger clusters are millions of years old. The oldest clusters, we see globular clusters that are 11, 12 billion years old. The interesting thing is, when we start studying you know, the universe and how the universe formed, these are some remnants. These are remnants of the very early history of the universe that we can study. These are 11 billion years old, 12 billion years old, 13 billion years old. We're looking at things that formed when the universe was only a billion years old. So one-eighth or so of its life in the first eighth of its life or even earlier. So we're seeing some of those remnants left over from what the universe was like very early on. So we can also use them to help us estimate what was the universe like early on and how old is the universe. We can use that. All right. So finishing up the second section here, um, we can understand stellar evolution. We look at stars at various stages. We like using star clusters because the stars formed at the same time from the same material. We remove a couple of variables. And just like any science uh, experiment, I did a sci had to do a science project at some point in school, you want one thing that changes. If three things change, well, which one is causing what's your, your observation? What is causing the actual change if you're changing the mass and the composition and the how old they are, you're changing three things. So star clusters, using those, eliminate that, eliminate a lot of that by only focusing on one change. And they are something that will give us estimates. Right? The oldest star cluster gives us a limit on the age of the universe. The universe has to be at least that old. 
How did, how did a star cluster form before the universe? You found a star cluster that was 20 billion years old, something's wrong. Then the universe has to be older because you can't have a cluster that's older than the entire universe. All right, questions? Okay, well, let's go ahead and look a little more about what happens. Um, right now, going back, what we'd been looking at in the first section, the star exhausted its hydrogen, the core was collapsing, the outer layers were expanding. And hydrogen was burning around the edge, in, around, the core, around, the core, around the central core. Eventually, you will get temperatures high enough for helium to begin to fuse. Remember, you've got po two positive charges and two positive charges that you're trying to fuse together. You need a lot more energy. That's four times the amount of force. You might think it would be four times the temperature then, but it's not. It only takes 10 million degrees to fuse hydrogen. It takes 100 million degrees to fuse helium. Why so much hotter? Well, if you try to fuse two helium atoms together, they instantaneously break apart. What forms with two helium atoms fusing together is unstable. And it, it uh, immediately breaks apart. So the only way to fuse helium into something heavier is to fuse three helium atoms at a time. So you've got to get those two that collide together, and you've got to have a third one hit it in a tiny fraction, you know, nanoseconds. You have to have that third one hit it in order for it to become something stable. It's called the triple alpha process because the helium nucleus is also called an alpha particle. If you talk about the different types of radiation, there's alpha radiation, beta, and gamma. Uh, helium nucleus is an alpha particle. So we can't do it with just two helium nuclei. That's unstable, immediately breaks apart. So you need even higher temperatures to get things moving fast enough that while those two helium atoms are just colliding before they break apart, the third one hits them, three helium atoms together do form something stable. Three helium atoms together would be two protons in each, two neutrons in each. So two times three protons is six protons, two times three neutrons is six neutrons, six protons and six neutrons together is carbon. Carbon is atom six in the periodic table, and the stable nucleus of carbon, the one in our bodies, the one in you know, all living things, is carbon-12, which means that it has six protons and six neutrons. So three helium nuclei together form one carbon nucleus. That is stable. So once you hit that really high temperature, 100 million Kelvin, you can start fusing helium. All of a sudden, the star's got a new source of energy. So remember, it had no energy. That core was just, just condensing down, and it was slowly heating up. 15 million degrees, 20, 25, 30, 30. Until it hits 100, nothing else happens in that core. Now, how this happens depends on how massive the star is. When you have a very low-mass star, it takes a long time. That core gets really, really dense. It compacts down. Everything gets very close together. And in a low-mass star, low-mass means like our sun, it undergoes a flash of helium burning. Materials all condensed really close together, and all of a sudden, the helium just fuses together. Once it hits that critical temperature, the helium starts to fuse. But it's what we call a helium flash because that new increase in energy doesn't go into expanding anything. Normally, if you heat things up, they expand. 
Well, this becomes, it's what we call a degenerate material. It's all collapsed so close together that you need to heat it up a lot before anything, before anything begins to expand. So it's a helium flash. It's all of a sudden a lot of energy being produced until you finally produce enough energy that you start to expand that core. You stop the contraction. You finally produce enough energy. For a really high mass star, the supermassive stars, well, the helium fusion begins slower. More mass, they've got, they reach that high temperature faster. So their helium begins just like hydrogen fusion begins. So what happens really depends, how this goes depends on the mass of the star. If it's a really low mass star, it's a major change and we'll see a big jump when we watch what happens to the star there. If it's a really high mass star, nothing much. It's a nice calm change, just like hydrogen burning beginning. So that's what we call, again, for the low mass stars, that's what we call a helium flash. All of a sudden, you've got lots of energy being produced at the, at the center of this star. And that will cause some major changes. And when we look at that on the HR diagram, here's what's been happening to the sun. There's our sun. Right now, it's slowly working its way up what we call the subgiant branch. Ten, five, more, five billion years from now, it will have made this little loop, use up its fuel, then it'll start to expand. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just keeps growing. That core keeps contracting, the outer layers expand, expand, expand. So our sun has worked its way all the way up to here. This is before any helium begins to burn. So you get all the way up to this point, this little peak here. That's where the helium flash occurs, and the sun jumps back down. What that means is that it, got, it was really big and red here. It was many times the size of our sun is right now. It was a lot cooler, and all of a sudden it jumps down over here into what we call the horizontal branch. So the star is actually going to contract. So our sun's going to get really big, then it's going to shrink back down in size again. It's still going to be a lot bigger than it was, but it's not going to be near as big as it was at this point. So it will actually collapse back down. It means it gets a little bit hotter on its surface, and it gets a lot fainter. Luminosity, right? Here it could be a thousand times, a thousand, several thousand times the luminosity of our sun. Now we're down to just 100 times. Still really bright, but not near as bright as it was before. So this is when you have the helium flash. It's just a big jump. And that occurs relatively fast. So once that helium flash occurs, you, know, you could be talking you know, years, tens of years, hundreds of years. You're talking about smaller time frames where it's going to go from this point to this point, maybe a 1,000 years or so. I don't remember the exact number. But now it's stable again. We've got an energy source. We didn't have that for a while. The core had no source of energy. So it settles into what we call the horizontal branch because most of the stars form a branch that is horizontal on the HR diagram. So you'll form a lot of stars in here of various masses. And what this star is doing is burning helium into carbon in the core. So that's its source of energy now. And it's burning hydrogen to helium in a shell around that. Central portion, burning helium into carbon. Shell around that, burning hydrogen into helium. The rest of the star, just a great big envelope to transport that energy out into space. So the stars are constantly changing. Our sun will jump 
up, it will jump back down. It will drastically change. And you get kind of a preview of what's going to happen. It's going to head back up again because eventually it's going to use up that carbon or the helium. Now, the helium does not last near as long as the hydrogen did. You have to burn, you have a much higher temperature. The helium, burning helium into carbon gives you less energy than burning hydrogen into helium. The heavier elements you get, the less energy you get out of it. So burning hydrogen to helium is the most efficient one you can get, most energy. And that was only a fraction of a percent, if you recall. Helium into carbon is even less. Carbon into heavier elements is even less. So it's not going to last as long. You need high temperatures, and you need a lot of energy being produced to keep the star stable for this period of time. So this will last a lot less time, but it is a new stability, a new region of stability that has occurred. So what we're going to see is something like this. As it, begins to, as it begins to fuse helium, eventually the core is going to become pretty much carbon, carbon and oxygen. Maybe oxygen is adding one of those carbon atoms, taking one more helium atom. If you add one more helium atom to a carbon atom, you get oxygen. So you're going to have, this is the ash, the fuel that's left behind. Around that, you have a region where the helium is fusing into carbon, adding to this. So that's where the helium fusion again is occurring, and then you have helium that's formed, and you have a region of uh, hydrogen fusing, and then most of, most of the stars, the envelope of hydrogen. To specify, this is not to scale. This core, with this whole section where any few energy is being generated is a lot smaller. You know, to scale, it's all sitting in that core. It's expanded out here so you can actually see it. But the biggest part of this would be that hydrogen envelope. This red would be the, much, the very biggest part of that. So the star has settled down again for a short time, but eventually it's going to start building up a new core. It's going to build up a core of carbon and oxygen, and it's starting to run out of fuel. That core will get bigger and bigger. So what's going to happen? Well, it really depends, again, on the mass of the star. You're building up a core primarily of carbon. A star less than two times the mass of our sun, less than two solar masses, will never be able to fuse carbon. Our sun fits in there. Our sun is not going to get hot enough to fuse carbon into anything else. So the core is just contracting, 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 getting slower, slowly and slowly smaller but it's not going to get hot enough. There's not enough mass there to increase the temperature high enough to fuse carbon into heavier elements. So for our sun, that's what's going to happen. The core is continued to contract, heats up. As the core contracts, the outer layers expand. So it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So after it uses up the helium, it starts moving back up again, what we call the asymptotic giant branch. So this was the giant branch when it went up the first time, the second time. It's heading up up here, and it actually reaches that upper corner. Our sun will become a supergiant. It'll actually engulf the Earth at that point. So probably expanding out to about the orbit of Mars or so. So the inner planets will be gone you know, five, six billion years from now. The sun will come up there, and then it very quickly kind of changes. We'll look at these last stages a little bit, little bit afterwards. But this... But it's again, this is a much faster rate. This was you know, 10 billion years to get up here. 
You're only talking about a billion years or so for the rest of this life. It doesn't take it very long to go through that rest, the rest of the life. For more massive stars, you will be able to fuse, <coughs> fuse this. And I'll look at that in the next section when we look at the much more massive stars. You will be able to fuse carbon into heavier elements. So they get another energy source that occurs. So kind of summarizing this, looking at you know, what is the evolution of a star like the sun? Well, again, the main sequence is going to be about 90% of, of the star's life. So 10 billion years there. The rest, all those stages that we're looking at there, are very, very short. So for a main sequence for something like the sun, when you get to helium fusion, whereas you're in 10 billion year range here, you're at 100 million years. Long time, right? But a lot less than 10 billion. So that is, you know, less than one, that's about one one-hundredth the life of the sun on the main sequence, one one-hundredth of the time. So 100-year human lifespan, say that's one year by comparison. Very short time frame to occur. When it becomes a giant again the second time, it's 20 million years, even less of a fraction of the lifespan. But that's when the sun is going to get really big. This just, the table just shows you what the temperature is going to be like. It's going to go from 6,000 down to 3,000, back up close to 5,000, and then back to 3,000 again. The luminosity, one, you know, there again, easily, any of those, easily vaporizing anything that we have on the Earth, and how big the diameter will get. So the sun is going to get 100 times its size. It's going to go down to about 10 times its size. So it's going to get big, it's going to get small again, and then it's going to get really big again. So it's a really short time frame. Very, very short time frame. But as those outer layers expand out, right, the gravity of the sun is less able to hold them. They're getting further away. Eventually, instabilities will cause them to be pushed off. And we get to the end state of what, a, what our sun will be like in five, six billion years would be something like this. This is an example of what we call a planetary nebula. So essentially, it's a gigantic star. There's the core of the star. This white dot at the center is the core of the star. The outer layers have just continued to expand out into space. So this is something much bigger than our solar system. The material has expanded out and continues to do so. It's illuminated. It looks bright because that core is really hot, tens of thousands of degrees still. And that emits a lot of ultraviolet radiation, which excites all the atoms and causes them to glow. So this is, again, an example of what we, become, what we call a planetary nebula. It has nothing to do with planets. It may have gotten named that way because through a small telescope it might have looked like, you know, maybe you're forming a planetary system around this. But nothing really to do with planets other than maybe its uh, shape and, fo and form. But we end up with two things at this stage. You end up with the compact core of the star, we call a white dwarf star. And we end up with the outer layers expelling out into space. So this is one of those ways we get energy, uh, we get material, sorry, material being expelled back out into space. It's pretty much just hydrogen and helium. That's most of what you see there. Most of the material that's formed, the carbon, the oxygen is locked up in that white dwarf star. So we need something else still to get that back out into the rest of the universe. 
Now, this is one example of a planetary nebula. There's all sorts of different ones. Here's just several different images. They don't always look the same. There can be differences depending on the mass of the star, whether or not it was in a binary system. If you had two stars orbiting, that may affect it. And you may not pulse out all those layers at once. It may, when the instabilities occur, it may push off one layer, one part of it. Then a little while later, tens of thousands of years later, another layer gets pushed off. So sometimes you see things like this, where you see one outer layer and then you see an inner layer, where it happened multiple times. Some of the things where you get some interesting things like this, there might actually be two stars down there. There are two stars orbiting each other. The way the star is moving as the material gets pulsed out, gets pushed out, might change exactly the shapes of the way it's, way it's formed. Could also have to do with strong magnetic fields. There's lots of different things that could cause this to occur. So, again, there's big variation in what we actually see. Compared to everything else we've looked at so far, this is an extremely short stage. In order to see this, for a star like our sun, we've got to catch it in about a 50,000-year interval. And I know I always say these times are so short, but for, for our stars, that our sun that might have taken 11 billion years to get here, the 50,000 years that it's actually visible like this, is an instant, you know, that's, that's it. Formed and it's gone. So the only times we see these are when we happen to catch those stars at that exact instant when the planetary nebula is forming. Go back 100,000 years, these stars wouldn't have looked like this. Wait 100,000 years from now, you won't see the planetary nebula anymore. At that point, the layers would have, would have expanded out far enough, the white dwarf would have cooled off enough that you won't see the planetary nebula anymore. You've got to catch it at just that instant. And 50,000 years from now is a very, very short time in stellar evolution compared to I've been talking about billions of years and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of years. Now we're down to just 50,000 years for this stage. And it is one way you do send some material back into the interstellar medium. So some material can get dredged up. It can show a little bit of carbon, a little bit of oxygen. It's not the biggest way. The biggest way we will look at coming up. So finishing up this section, in the later stages, you've got helium fusing to carbon, and you start to build up a layered appearance in the interior of the star. And eventually, a star like our sun will push those outer layers out into space, and you can see that as a planetary nebula. So six billion years from now, you know, some distant astronomer looking at our sun may see something like one of those images that we looked at, you know, what our sun might look like, you know, something like that six billion years from now to some distant astronomer looking back at the, at the sun. All right, questions? Yeah? So if that happens with our sun, how does that affect the planets? Does that actually move them around at all? Pretty much that would vaporize anything in, the in, anything in the inner solar system. So we'd be gone. The rest of that in the outer solar system Probably to some extent, I don't know, some of that might be able to survive because planetary planets can be very resilient, but when you're inside a star, the, the, when, you get in, when the star expands large enough, it's just a frictional drag. Eventually you're going through this material and it's slowing you down and your orbit will just spiral in and you'll be vaporized in part of that. So for us, it's not going to affect it. For things like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, they may still, because the gravity isn't changing. Until you lose, even when you lose that material, most of the mass is still going to be there. 
most of the mass of the sun is in its core, not in that layers. You're not expelling out 90% of the mass and leaving 10% behind, more, more likely the other way. You're expelling 10% of the mass and leaving 90% of it behind in that core. So the mass won't really change, which won't change the gravity of the orbits that much. So the outer planets could still be there. Now, what happens when that material goes through them? Don't forget, this is really low, low density. So it may not, it may not affect their orbits near as much. It may modify their orbits a little bit, though. Good. Others? All right, well, our last section I wanted to go over is what do we do with the more massive stars? What happens with a star more massive than our sun? Well, the beginning stages are the same. So I'm not going to go through them, right? You're fusing hydrogen to helium. You eventually fuse helium to carbon. But the more mass of the star, the higher the gravity, the more the pressure on it. So you're going to get higher temperatures and higher pressures. So you can start to fuse heavier and heavier elements. You can fuse things like, and here again, this is, not even, this is even worse to being to scale than the other ones. That hydrogen envelope should be gigantic compared to everything else. But again, when I zoom in, so you can see what's going on in the core. So in here, you have hydrogen fusing in one layer. You have a layer with helium fusing into carbon. You have carbon and oxygen fusing. Those fuse into magnesium and neon. Those fuse into silicon and sulfur. And silicon and sulfur will fuse into iron. So you build up this very layered appearance of a star. It's got all sorts of energy sources. But remember, each one gives you less and less energy. So hydrogen into helium gives you the most. Helium into carbon is less than that. Carbon into, say, neon is less. And then neon and oxygen into silicon and sulfur is even less. And silicon and sulfur into iron is really, really a tiny amount of energy. So we have, we're building up these layers within a star. Iron, we'll look at, you can't fuse together. Well, you can, but you don't get any energy out of it. It gets less and less and less. Iron is the most stable nucleus that exists. So if you try to fuse two iron atoms together, it doesn't give you any energy. It's getting, think about it, it's getting less and less and less as you get higher and higher up the periodic table, you peak at iron. If you get way off over here to the heavy elements, you can break them apart to get energy. We looked at that with nuclear fission. Right? You can break uranium atoms apart and get energy. But at the peak, iron is the most tightly bound nucleus that we have. So there's going to be some problems with the star that builds up iron in its core. You can no longer get any energy source from it. Now, do we see examples of this? Well, this is one example. This is actually an image of a star uh, known as Eta Carinae. It is a 100 solar mass star. That's about as, most, as massive as you can get. The star itself is at the center. It's still beginning to eject some layers. You can see lobes of material here and here that are being ejected from that star. This is the type of star that is eventually going to explode as a supernova. When? We don't know. Right? Could happen next week. You know, might happen during this class for all we know, but people have been studying it for decades, kind of waiting for it to go. We think it's at that edge, but remember that edge in astronomy can be a thousand, even at this point, it's still a thousand, could be talking a thousand years. So it could go back in a hundred years and it will still be sitting there. It hasn't gotten to that critical point that will cause it to explode. But it's ejecting material. It's got enriched in heavier elements. So it's got lots of extra heavy elements. 
A lot of mass loss, a lot of materials being expelled out into space. And what we know is going on is that core fusion is continuing. It's working towards building up that iron in its core. We know that it has not gotten there yet. Because if you build up iron, you don't have very long to live. Once that core builds up a significant amount of iron and a sufficient uh, temperature, it's gone. And this is one stage that happens in time frames that we can understand. Once it gets to that iron core, it's got about a day. So if it builds up an iron core today, tomorrow it explodes. That's about how long that iron core will last. So all these other stages when we talk about you know, tens of thousands of years, now we're getting down to a time frame that we can actually understand. That's how long that will last. But when that will occur, we can't look into the core and see where it is. So we don't know if that will happen next week, next year, a decade from now, 100 years from now, pretty much equally likely. We don't know where it is along that stage to get there. But once it gets there, it will not last a very long time. This is where, this is where the heavy, a lot of the heavier elements are coming from. So the material here is getting enriched in some of that material, so excess carbon, silicon, all those other materials are getting enriched here that have formed down in, down in the star and are getting dredged out by the convective currents within the star. So they're getting brought up to the surface and then being expelled out into space. So you know, this is where a lot of the material on the Earth, in us, comes from. It comes from things like this. Eventually, as I showed you this image, you're building up heavier and heavier elements. So I showed you this uh, diagram before. There's a limit. Iron is the absolute limit for fusion. Any element heavier than iron, you can break apart to get a little bit of energy. Any element lighter than iron, you can build together to get some energy. And in fact, if we look at this diagram, this shows the, how tightly bound the nucleus is. So helium or hydrogen has essentially nothing. So fusing hydrogen into helium takes you from here to here. That's a big energy difference. That gives you a lot of energy for every fusion of hydrogen atoms into helium atoms. Helium into carbon gives you this much energy, that energy difference, a lot less. Carbon into oxygen, even less. And as you work your way up, you get less and less and less energy. Iron is right there at the peak. If you go past iron, it starts to go down. So can we fuse hydrogen, uh, iron atoms together? If you have enough temperature, yeah. You can fuse them together. You can take two iron atoms, fuse them together, make some heavier element way out here. But you don't get any energy out of it. In fact, it takes energy. So it's going to take energy, which means you cool off the core. You're sucking energy out of the core by trying to fuse um, iron atoms together. So the energy is going to become less, and that's going to cool off the core, which causes it to collapse down more. Eventually, it becomes a runaway process. So you've got no energy released. The core will become unstable. And it's not an explosion. It's actually an implosion. Everything collapses down. So it just, essentially, it, the energy becomes so much that the iron starts dissociating. But even if you try to go back this way, you know, once you've got iron, you can't go either direction. Whichever way you try to go, if you try to fuse that iron together, or if you get high enough energy and you start splitting the iron atoms apart, either of those takes energy. 
So essentially, you're cooling off the core and everything just collapses inward. Well, it collapses inward to a point. Eventually, everything gets compressed as tight as it can possibly be. And then it rebounds and explodes outward. So iron is the heaviest element that can be produced during normal fusion processes. So where are we going to get the heavier elements? Right? There's things like gold and silver and tin and, thing and uranium that, you know, way out here, that exist in the universe but can't be formed by regular fusion processes. Some of these are actually produced during the supernova. So during that supernova, lots of energy being released and could be create all of these... That's when some of these heavier elements could actually be created. So that's where we're getting a lot of these heavier material, a lot of the heavier materials. It's just, and eventually, again, with the supernova, and we're going to look, uh, talk a little bit more about supernovae. I think it's in the next, yeah, in the next section next week. What we have is that things become really completely unstable at this point. That's the very short time frame. Once you get to that iron, you're done. You can't do anything else. You've got no source of energy. You've got no place to go. Whatever that iron tries to do is going to be wrong. If it tries to combine together, it takes energy. If it tries to split apart, it takes energy. No matter what it's going to do, it's going to be gone. And the star is going to be explode. So when we look at some of these, you know, what do we have for uh, the abundances? We have a couple of what we call different populations of stars. We have population, we call population one and population two. Population two stars are stars like our sun. They have heavy metals, again, abundances that are similar to those of our sun. And again, heavy metals, just anything other than hydrogen or helium. Within globular clusters, we find population one stars, which have abundances that are a tenth or a hundredth of what we see in our sun. So they have a lot less carbon, a lot less silicon than our sun. When we look at a spectra of this star, we're less likely to see strong carbon lines, strong silicon lines, strong sodium, magnesium, any of the other heavier elements. We're not going to see any of those or very weaker ones in these stars. What we don't see, and one thing people have looked for, is the earliest generation of stars. You know, where are the ones that have almost nothing? So it looks like, even though the universe itself only created hydrogen and helium in that first instant, that the other, the very first generation of stars enriched the abundances very quickly. So we were able to get to stars that at least had some carbon, some silicon, and things that could form you know, the stuff that we needed to form Earth-like planets. So these stars are less likely to have Earth-like planets. They didn't have as much material to build from. They didn't have a lot of silicon to form rocks or a lot of iron to form an iron core. So if we're looking for life, at least life like ours, we wouldn't want to look around these very old stars. We'd want to look around the younger stars that have an enhanced level of metals that have more silicon, carbon, iron, things that we need for life. So we're kind of getting towards the end of a star's life here. I've given you a little bit about it. What we look at next week are really the really end states. We'll look in a little more detail about supernovae, and we'll look at the remnants that are left behind. I mentioned the white dwarfs here with the planetary nebula, but a star like this will actually um, give, leave 
uh, something else behind. So a very massive star will still leave a remnant behind. And we'll look, about white, look at white dwarfs in a little bit more detail. Um, but what we're having, you know, as we get to the end of the star's life, each successive stage is, goes faster and faster and faster. The main sequence, very long. Red giant, somewhat long. But when we get to those later stages, those go really quick. Mainly because the fuel doesn't give you as much energy, so it lasts you shorter. You've got to go through more fuel to do the same thing. And the nuclear reaction rates, higher temperatures, those reaction rates are going faster. And eventually that star reaches its limit. As iron builds up in the core, that's when it explodes and becomes a supernova. So that's, the, that's kind of the end of a star's life right there. Once it gets to iron, that's when it's going to explode. And what I'll look at in the next chapter, we'll talk about you know, what happens after the supernova, what's left behind because it doesn't quite wipe out everything. There, is or going to be a re there would be a remnant left behind. But this only occurs for the very massive stars. Our sun gets to the planetary nebula phase. It never gets to the point where it will come close to being able to make uh, iron. So finishing up this chapter, and then you've got about 20-some minutes if you need to finish up lab from last time. Uh, massive stars, more mass, more gravity, higher temperatures. So we can form higher temperatures in their cores, which means we can fuse heavier and heavier elements. Once we get up to iron, the star is out of luck. No matter what it does, it is going to explode and end its life as a supernova. And I'll probably kind of get a start on this since next week's a little short. I'll talk a little bit about this and start to kind of start into the next chapter a little bit. And we'll talk about some of this on Wednesday. Questions? If you did not finish lab, feel free to stick around and finish that up. I need that today. If you finished the lab, you're, if you turned it in already, I know a couple of people did, you're done. And take off and enjoy the rest of your day. And I will see you on Wednesday.